Welcome to the TCM Challenge, a monthly movie review podcast where Matt and I challenge each other to watch some classic films. This month's movie is 1941's The Maltese Falcon, and I'm Matt in Buffalo. And this is Matt in Arizona as our noir theme continues. Oh man, I couldn't be more happy with that theme, right? No. <laughs> this is We're checking off some classics here, right? Yeah, which was exactly the inspiration behind my choice this month, which is, of course, the Maltese Falcon. Right. You had some options, right? But I'll, I'll recap. You had some weird themes emerge from your options. Basically, it was a Paul Newman month, but you steered in a different direction. So you had three Paul Newman movies to pick from. 1963's The Prize, uh, 1962's Sweet Bird of Youth, and 1972's The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. And then you also had a William Powell joint, which I would have been more than happy with. <laughs> and I thought it was right up your alley as Lawyer Man. And then finally, the one that jumped off the page was 1941's version of The Maltese Falcon. Matt, what's your history? What brought you to this? Never seen it before, but heard of it. And always meant to get around to it. And when I saw it off on the list last month, I was still still riding the noir high off of uh, Double Indemnity. So I wanted to keep the train going. And I guess arguably people will say this is the first true noir movie, which, okay. I'll I'll take that. I guess I don't know the history well enough, but it's definitely one of those founding ones of it. So, it's, all right. Well, it certainly oh, checks oh. out. We'll talk about it as we go through. But you know, like the way um, Halloween created a lot of the horror and slasher movie stereotypes. I you do see a lot of the archetypes of the noir film in this movie. So whether or not it was the first one, it certainly fit the basics of what you get out of a noir movie. Oh, absolutely. And I would love to live in like the John Wick verse where there's just assassins everywhere. Give me the 1940s universe where it's just private detectives everywhere. Just a million intrigue and murders that just need to be solved. All this wealth that can, you know, could be retrieved somewhere. Oh, it's just it's wonderful. And I'll tease up a little something for our listeners. Uh, As we've mentioned many times, Matt, you and I met because we did a lot of podcasting on Star Trek together. Uh-huh. I'll just tease throughout this this whole uh, discussion that uh, I think the writers of The Big Goodbye owe this uh, episode quite, uh, excuse me, owe this movie a lot of uh, deference. Oh, yeah. I mean, parodied a million times, would, right? In fact, I would say some characters in that episode are straight ripped off from this movie almost. Oh, yeah, uh, this is, if you didn't know it, you probably saw it parried in cartoons a million times. You know, everything goes back to this. It's an iconic film. Before we get too far into it, we have some housekeeping. So from 1941, just the level set on what was out. Biggest box office films were Sergeant York, Honky Tonk, Louisiana Purchase, How Green Is My Valley. A lot of things I wasn't overly familiar with in a year that also came out with Dumbo, uh, Sullivan's Travels, The Lady Eve, The Claude Rains, um, The Wolfman, and also High Sierra, which was a very important film for Humphrey Bogart in the same year. And then 
a little film called Citizen Kane, also in the Maltese Falcon. Suspicion by Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Uh, Pretty big movies, ones that were nominated for Oscars, so they got, you know, that recognition. But How Green Is My Valley won that year, uh, which is always, you know, the Oscars don't really ever (laughs) reflect what the cultural impact is on movies. More often than not, it feels like Citizen Kane, Maltese Falcon, at, at the bare minimum, all have more staring power than that. And also one more bit of business before we move in. Due to double indemnity last month and the the Maltese Falcon this month, we have a tie with Kenner G. Kemp for a, somebody who has appeared in four of our films. It's now Eugene Yosef. He is a costumes and jewelry uh, guy behind the scenes. He contributed to Kennel Club, Kennel Club Murder, Double Indemnity, Maltese Falcon, like I mentioned, and they won't believe me. So he is now tied with Kenner G. Kemp uh, for having four credits in the TCM podcast here. But I will say he might have an edge in the long run because while we were kind of amazed at the 582 credits for Kenner G. Kemp, that's nothing. Eugene Yosef has 2,808 credits to his name on IMDb. I think he might soar past um, easily at some point. So something to keep an eye on. Nothing was worth updating until the last two months. Let me throw in another trope for you since it seems to be a theme with like, I think the last two or three months we've done these movies, we've had a six degrees of separation from Miracle on 34th Street. And here we have what, what here we have one again with Jerome Cowan who plays Miles Archer, who isn't in the movie for very long, as we'll get into. But he is the prosecutor in Miracle on 34th Street trying to put Chris Kringle into the asylum. There's connections all over, other than the obvious Humphrey Bogart. There's connections all over um Treasure of the Sierra Madre here. It's another um it's another John, John Houston Finn. Yep. Yeah. And also his father, Walter Houston, has an uncredited cameo in this, if you weren't aware. Yes, I He's saw. He's uh Captain Jacoby as he comes in and promptly dies on the couch. So we're already jumping into the trivia. So, well, I mean, I guess we should jump right in. Yeah. Setting is 1941. We're introduced very quickly to Sam Spade. Humphrey Bogart, just an iconic character, really, I would say, copied, parodied, ripped off just endlessly. Yeah, and, um, and, and another Dashiell Hammett creation. Yes, and it's worth me pointing out, boy, did I ever do my homework for this podcast. In addition to watching this version of the Manchurian, or not Manchurian Candidate, I don't know why it's at the tip of my tongue. The Maltese Falcon. I watched it twice. I read the book. I have it in front of me, as well as the 1931 version of this movie and the 1936 version of it. The 1931 is called the uh, the Maltese Falcon. And then the middle one in the middle of the 30s is Satan met a lady. And then this, which is actually the third version of this book committed to screen. So we can get into all that as we go forward. But needless to say, the Humphrey Bogart depiction is the best. Is the most. Getting and, back to the. You know, yeah. Obviously, it's the one that stood the test of time. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, long and short of it, the other two movies are awful. Uh, I can kind of wrap that up at some point, but I don't need to do the compare and com- contrast all the way through. So we're introduced to him. You have your strong shadows, awesome office, blah, 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 right? Just straight well, for- into his character. Well, first we get a scroll explaining what the Maltese Falcon is. Well, that's is. true. Right. Complete bullshit history, by the way. <laughs> None of this I is figured. true. Uh, well, I mean, broad strokes, I suppose, but the specifics is purely the MacGuffin for the film, right? Uh, but yes, the the MacGuffin is, to bring anybody up to speed who isn't familiar with this film, um, Crusaders basically had unimaginable wealth and as a you know payment for being allowed to hold the, the island of Malta, they would send the king of Spain a jewel-encrusted, solid gold uh, falcon, right? And on its shipment to Spain, it's hijacked by pirates, and it's lost to the ages. Unimaginable, incalculable wealth associated with this falcon, right? Well, and it's kind of, I mean, I can kind of see why this scroll is brought up at first. Yes, the, the history is bullshit, but at the same time, after this point, is except for the fact that the, the film is called the Maltese Falcon, the Falcon isn't brought up for a good long while after this. Which I would have been totally fine with because of the way that it's introduced when we cut to Sidney Greenstreet, Casper Gutman's character, the way he describes it and everything's any, you know, all I would have needed. Right. So it's not a fault by any means, but I, I didn't need this intro. I mean, I even skipped it in my memory from the movie just straight into the awesome characters throughout. Well, the thing right? is, I mean, yeah, yeah, we probably didn't need it, but maybe audiences in 1941 appreciated having it at the beginning. Sure. So pretty quickly, we're jumping right into the plot. Sam, by the way, has an awesome secretary, Effie, throughout Effie. this. Yep. Um, who is like a really smart, good character, I would say. And by the way doing her so much more justice than the other two versions of the film. Smart, cool character brings in our whole primordial uh, femme fatale, as we'll find out. Uh, Mary Astor as Ruth Wonderly at this point, she comes in and it starts to explain to Sam Spade, who's a private detective goes without saying that she is looking for her missing sister she just came in from New York, et cetera, et cetera. She's with this guy named Floyd Thursby. Oh, boy, I need my sister back, right? In comes Spade, uh, Sam Spade's uh, partner, uh, Archer, right? And you can see, like, good, subtle acting. They're kind of shooting eyes that they immediately know this story is bullshit. But they're going to roll with it. You see, Archer is pretty lascivious, kind of like a grosso dude, um, indicating, you know, we find out he's married, but he's obviously super into this girl. I saw her first, blah, 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 all that kind of a thing. Well, that's, I mean, that's okay, because we're going to find out his wife is just as lascivious. Yeah, so that's a that's an interesting subplot to this story, right? But um, so we'll, she we'll starts there, doling out. Yeah. yeah, we'll get there. She starts doling out a lot of cash, and they're like, well, how do we know who this thursby is how are we going to get back to the girl you know if it's going to be like a snatch and grab or whatever oh well i'm going you know ruth wonderly says that she's going to meet with thursby tonight i'll point him out to you tail him 
et cetera, et cetera. Right. So Archer here and, you know, a little fate, uh, you know, flipped its coin. Archer says, I will be following her. But when, and they knew when she started di- doling out all this cash that this is kind of a BS story, but whatever, the money speaks. So cut to, I believe, the only scene of the movie without Humphrey Bogart being in it. It feels like I'm not it, mistaken. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, maybe something very slight. But we get a cutaway to Archer trailing um, somebody, presumably floyd thursby right and he is uh shot killed rolls down a hill good stunt scene and then we're right back we don't see who oh just the hand coming in from this the screen right just perfect old stuff we then cut back to humphrey bogart in bed being woken up by the police call saying your partner's dead he heads out right and this is out but I, i love the fact that he makes the he makes Effie call his wife, uh, Archer's wife. Yeah. So <laughs> having seen my history, by the way, is, is I've seen this movie a number of times and actually probably at the beginning of the summer, even that recently. So I really made a focused attempt to, well, also I'm super uh, Maltese falconed out having watched and read so much of this going into it. I really wanted to like focus in on Bogart's performance and his read on the character throughout this. And this is where you start seeing a lot of it. Cause he goes up. Yeah. He calls his secretary and he's like, I, I don't want to deal with the wife. You can take care of this. Right. I'm right. going to go over. And he's immediately kind of contentious with the police there. You know, you can see they have a lot of history together but you also see, man, he doesn't really care about this uh, death all that much, does he? <laughs> no, he's not that broken up about it. And of course, you know, the sort of ca- callous reaction makes the, the police obviously suspicious of him. <clears throat> yeah. By the way, trivia behind the when he's looking down the hill at the dead body, there's a poster for a previous Humphrey Bogart movie over his shoulder on the wall, kind of put there as a joke, huh. by the way. Uh, a movie that Humphrey, it's like a dance musical, something Bogart hates it. It's one of the movies he says is like the low point of his career, by the way. So I think they put that in as a joke for him there. Yeah, but he refuses to even go look at the body. He's like, no, what am I going to do about it? I mean, it literally says, I'm not going to see anything that you won't see and takes off. He says he's going to go tell the wife, right? Knowingly lying to the police at this point. But it's interesting. The character is he's going to go and try and track down the girl, right? Right. The suspicion stuff is going in his head. It's he's going to track her down. It's really just shown as like a phone call. He can't track her. Then he goes back to his apartment, but I'm sure in the, you know, the cut somewhere in between, he was doing other detective things trying to find her. Right. But very quick, efficient pacing in this movie. It moves along. It's got a good hustle to it. So it goes straight yeah, to I mean, his it's, apartment. It's right? only it's only an hour 44, but they pick they they managed to pack a lot of story into an hour 44, but never feels um, draggy. I would have guessed it was actually shorter than that, right? Um, you know, playing in my internal clock that the movie moves at a good clip, right? So he goes back. The cops have caught him basically in this lie. They went and checked and they know that it was his secretary who did it. 
So where were you at? Oh, by the way, Floyd Thursby's been killed. So they immediately jumped to he went and killed Thursby, right? And we have our two cops. It's good cop, bad cop dynamic. You don't really see a ton of it throughout the film, uh, but it's straight from the book and just kind of like a good dynamic between them. Uh, Tom is the more friendly guy versus Dundee, who is like the more senior officer who always, I think, suspects Sam is uh, at the periphery of crime going on and wants to get him one of these days, right? But we get to see some pretty awesome, that classic noir snap dialogue that's just motor mouth, just awesomeness throughout, right? Motor mouth and, 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 and metaphors. Oh yeah, yeah, and just like the wit throughout of like, how did I kill Thursby again? I forget, right? And it's just like throwing it back at these dumb cops, right. or who he doesn't respect them, right? And Tom no, the whole and like time said, is just saying, "Give us a break. We have to do this, dude. You know we have to do this. So can we all just get off each other's ass? It's well, we got to check and the like boxes." Like you said, I mean, I'm sure it's implied that they have history because you know, as a private detective, he probably clashes with them a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In this made up universe of just hordes of private detectives just roaming around independently investigating murders. Yeah, I could see how they would um, run into the ire of the police pretty frequently. So cut to the next morning now. Um, Maybe not the direct. uh, Maybe it is the exact next thing that happens is the archer's uh, wife comes in. Right. And she is draped in her gown, uh, you know, grieving black veil and all that. Another black veil after last month. Yep. The and this is where I I do make the mistake of reading and then watching things too quickly. So I conflate (laughs) the scenes that I forget if it's in what version or if it was just me playing the book in my head with Sam Spade, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart and everyone. Yeah. But she comes in and basically goes. Did you kill Archer? Right. So that we can be together. And he gets really pissed, <laughs> pissed at this because it's like, no, I didn't kill him. I in, in this, he has no desire for her whatsoever. Right. She's played a little bit older, I'm guessing, uh, than what he would want. She's played and- a little bit older, but I mean. I started wondering what the nature of their relationship kind of was, and I figured it out along the way, but I thought it was pretty interesting that um, they kiss when they first uh, meet up together. And I didn't know yeah. if that was a, I didn't know if that was a 1940s thing or if it's a we're having an affair thing. Yeah, they're they're having an affair, right? So that right. the the only really interesting reason to go back and watch the three versions of this are, the first version of the Maltese Falcon, 1931, it's pre-code and you can see it. The first introduction of Sam Spade is he goes into his office, um, different actor, of course, right? It's like Cortez right. or something like that. And he's picking a late, he's escorting a lady out of his office and he goes in and he picks up all the pillows that were disturbed off his couch. Right. Oh, okay. And it's yeah. like, as much as you could in 1931, but it's like, oh, obviously he's banging every chick he sees in this. It's more than what this in the book, but then it's even more overt that, yeah, there is probably an ongoing affair with the wife, but 
he doesn't really have too much interest in it. Like it's something cheap on the side for him versus, you know, it's, it's not an even relationship. Right. But she comes in and is like, be kind to me, Sam. Right. I just lost my husband and I want to be with you. Kind of doesn't amount to too much. She's a little bit of a side MacGuffin in this, but it shows you a trend that I think is a reflection of good writing too, but also the code Sam Spade's character in this version has a positive upward trajectory of, for the most part of character and morality, I think throughout because mm. he's married, you know, he's sleeping with this married woman behind the back of his business partner, a guy who he obviously doesn't actually even really respect. And then, you know, he sleeps with Mary Astor's character coming up or it's implied as much as you can in the code, but totally obviously does. And then pretty much has like a huge speech at the end of like his morality is intact or he found his morality throughout. It's a little bit less like that in the book and the pre-code version. It's a little bit more ambiguous and flat projection, uh, but it doesn't ring wrong at all. Right. But in this version, you see him turning his back on her. Right. Yeah. Right. I think this version's better from what you described. And yeah, I mean, he's, he's really not all that broken up about Archer's death. And I, I thought they did a really good job of showing that because one of the first things he tells Effie to do is have someone come in and scrape the name off the, off the uh, window. Oh, that's cold as hell. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the first things that you see, uh, by the way, also cool direction, right? When they show the, uh, shadow of their names on the floor after Ruth Wonderly leaves, it looks like a tombstone with their names on it. I'm like, well, that's some pretty good for- foreshadowing. Oh, I, right? I didn't catch that. I, I'll have to go back and look. I didn't. That catch was. That. I only really caught that on my second watching in two days of the film. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, it's 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 there, right? Um, there's also some obvious shadow work at the end of the film too um implying other stuff so anyhow he's basically like lady i'm done with this she kind of is like a little bit of a red herring kind of disruptive force later on in the film uh but pretty much like get out of here i didn't kill him for you you're you're insane what the hell is your problem get out of here so we then find out basically that that whole story wait which they knew the ruth wonderly thing was all bs She's actually uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, right? Yes. Um, And he tracks her down and he starts talking to her. And she's, what we find out, continuing to lie and doesn't know who killed Thursby. She's terribly afraid. Sam, I need your help. I need protection. All that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm kind of with Sam and for the rest of the movie. I, I don't trust anything she says for the rest of the film. Oh, no. I mean, at the end, in his just awesome, what, eight minute monologue or basically whatever it ends up being. And Humphrey Bogart's just kick ass final run of the movie. He's like, you haven't been straight with me for 30 minutes at any given time. Right. Right. And it's like at this point, he knows it. Like literally the first thing they did is just trying to buy his loyalty. And probably around this time, he already knows that it easily could have been him dead that night if his partner just didn't happen to show up. Right. Yeah. So his defenses are up. 
which then brings up his character of like when he does knowingly sleep with her coming up, it's like, it's an interesting character thing. Cause I think at this point he knows she's crap and he's trying to take advantage of her too, because she points out, um, how much money he asks, like, how much money do you have? And she goes, $500. He's like, well, give it all to me. Right. So he's taking advantage of her. I need that for, you know, walking around money, protecting you. She goes, by the way, another neat lie that's hard to pick up in the film. And I don't think it's by mistake is she goes, well, I don't have anything else. And he's like, well, you need to hawk your jewelry and your furs. She doesn't. She shows up in the end of the film in her jewelry and furs still showing that she still had more money. Yeah. Right. So it's he knows that she's full of shit through this whole thing. Right. So. What the next scene is then inter you know introduction to argue like it's hard to pick who the best actor in this is. There's like four or five just like stellar performances, but we're introduced to maybe my favorite. I'm gonna talk myself out of that as soon as we get to Gutman, but Peter, Peter Laurie who comes yeah. in. Man, I don't know if you've ever seen the his uh, movie M, but Peter Laurie's amazing. Yeah. In this, he's fantastic. He is extraordinarily creepy and stuff. He's funny in this, and he's just like unsettling, and he's playing stuff all subtle, but he is just phenomenal in this. He steals yeah. the show until Sidney Greenstreet shows up and then does the favor back to him, right? And you know, like I said at the beginning, clearly this character inspired that Felix Leach character in the Dixon Hill uh, program. Uh, inspired, I can't imagine how many things, right? I mean, everybody's copying his voice mostly from this film, right? He's one of the most impersonated golden era of film um, actors out there. Yeah. But he comes in also, well, I'll ask for your Gadar impressions on this, but he is in the book. Early on, they don't play around with it. It's very clear he's pretty openly gay in a relationship with uh, the Wilmer character. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, the by the way, the book, it's, the movie is um, really, really close. It's worth reading because it's a better written book than Double Indemnity, but it follows the film practically identically, right? But you just get a little bit more flavor that some a published book in the thirties that a coded film couldn't do. Right. But it's kind of there. Right. But I think they switched the Wilmer relationship with Gutman potentially. Right. They always refer to him as a kept boy. So I think that's kind of an argument in there, but without being like knock you over the head with it, the Joel Cairo, Peter Laurie character is definitely being played as gay, I think, in the film, right? He has scented cards, you know, a little bit of the coded stuff there. Maybe, but I just picked up on him as weird. I mean, he's he's obviously well, that not too. American. You know, I just I didn't necessarily read it as gay. I just thought it was eccentric. And like I said, because I had seen things parodying this before, I wasn't looking for subtlety in in character. I was looking, you know, I was drawn to the fact like, oh, that's where this archetype comes from. 
Well, yeah, I mean that too, but I'm pretty, I'm virtually sure he's playing it as gay, like a little bit of feet, right? I mean, like, he's a little bit know. of, yeah, I mean, he's, he's flamboyant to be sure, right. but I mean, I didn't necessarily pick up on that. And then with the, later with the Gutman Wilmer relationship, I just took that more as like a mob boss and, it, and a underling that he happened to have, you know, some sort of close feeling for. Which is a completely fair read. Again, it's looking past all the uh, code, you know, bullshit that they had to put in place to not tell stories that they want. So it's like subtle stuff. So it could be kind of overreading, but yeah, kind of non judgmental, period appropriate look at like homosexuality was in the book. I don't think it's all that crazy to think it was put in the movie, especially when they, their plan was to make it the best, most accurate, you know, from book to uh, film transition as they could. Knowing that it's in the book makes it, makes me feel differently, but just watching it play out on film, I didn't necessarily pick up on it. Sure. So anyhow, Cairo comes in. Peter Laurie is like, I think, like legitimately funny throughout this at a lot of points, just like his mannerisms, some of his um, word choices when he tells Spade later on, like Spade's like, let's go to your room and have a talk. And the way Laurie goes, you know, our private conversations haven't gone well before. I, I'm not going to take you up on that. It's yeah. like it was delivered in like a really funny way. And it's just consistently interesting he's always doing weird little fidgety things with his hands he's totally doing the steve mcqueen i'm gonna steal the scene and you're going to look at me by me just doing an action in the background mcqueen would do that all the time and it totally works you you end up looking at him uh, so anyhow he comes in dressed to the nines right he's going to be going to a show later that night and he starts talking to spade about I'm going to offer you $5,000 if you can get me a black figure of a bird, right? So now we're starting to see what the main MacGuffin is. So Spade's really skeptical of this. Like, are you asking me to steal this? Is this going to be illegal? Basically, Cairo's like, why is a bird don't ask too many questions. Yeah, which we'll find out it's actually closer to two million or something right. like that of nineteen forty one money, or, which puts it to like a hundred million now, something right. like that. But at the time, it's like, why pay five thousand dollars for a bird? Right. So again, he's seeing all this money starting to float around. He's starting to get what's up, right? So he's like playing into it. At this point, I think he is more than happy to play every side against each other. Of course, right. He's in it for himself and what he ends up having in those really interesting scenes at the end, Spade, right, is you forget that I'm out for myself, but you never quite know what his motivations were at any given time. And it's really, to me, interesting seeing how he's interpreting what and where his loyalties may ever have been. Yeah, I don't know necessarily. I mean, I think his loyalties are to himself, but I think the brilliant thing about his character that you find out at the end is that this whole throughout this whole movie, he's been manipulating the manipulators. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the final thing is like he is operating by his own set of morals, right? He was didn't quite know it the whole time. He was never not in control of the narrative. Right. Even when he's drugged and knocked out, he's kind of a a step above of everyone else. Right. So 
we get one of the best turns of comedic moments in the film. So while he kind of agrees to the the plan here in principle, he looks away and it turns back to Cairo has a gun on him and you will clasp your hands behind your neck, please. Right. And he's going to search the, um, the, the office for the bird. He gets up, spade knocks him out, disarms him, you know, and Laurie wakes up and he's like, why'd you hit me? <laughs> he's really upset. And he's like personally hurt why he had to get punched and stuff. And it's kind of like sad and pathetic and like a really charming, interesting way from him. I don't know. It's give me every scene of Cairo. Give me the prequel film of Gutman Cairo and O'Shaughnessy in Hong Kong in Turkey and wherever they were doing this. I want to see these idiots bumbling around for 17 years trying to get that or, or give it, Falcon. Or or give me the sequel film where they break out of prison and try to do something. Yep. Uh, I, I just, I love those characters. Just, they hate each other. They're all kind of like giving an air of competence, especially Gutman but they're super incompetent. <laughs> I just love that kind of uh, dynamic there, but he gets knocked out. He turns over his pockets and he's like, Hey, I'll still work for you. Right. Um, he gives the gun back to Cairo and Cairo immediately puts him back on him and says, I'm still going to search your <laughs> office. And Spade just laughs into like a commercial break kind but, of an, I edit mean, but he knew he, Spade knew he was going to do that. Yeah. And kind of figures he's probably harmless too. Right. But yeah, we still are agreed in principle. So later that evening now, um, Spade's out walking and he starts seeing that he's being tailed by who we'll find out is Wilmer. Uh, Elijah Cook, who is in The Killing, he was always kind of described as the littlest heavy in, in films. That's what I looked, yeah, he had a very interesting career when I looked him up on Wikipedia. Yeah, very long, too. Uh, yeah. I think he was the longest. He lived the longest of this cast, the last of them of them to die. Uh, but I always like their um, his costuming in this. They put him in just an enormous coat to really emphasize that he's like a little teeny guy. And a very big hat. Yes. Next to Green Street, who is a big dude, but also in very tight fitted clothes to emphasize how big he is and in robes and stuff like that. So it's, it's a really neat dynamic that they emphasize the, the scale of these two guys. Cause I never got the impression that Humphrey Bogart's all that big. <laughs> he feels like he's like a little old Hollywood actor as well. I, he, maybe it's just the screen. He, he may not be big, but he feels kind of tall and lanky. I always thought he's kind of broad. Like kind of like top heavy. Maybe it's always in his Maybe. jackets. I don't know. Um, but he's being tailed by this guy. And we get some of that classic old little spy craft stuff that I've mentioned. I love of him evading him by going into an apartment, mashing every button and then just going out the back door as Wilmer's trying to keep the tail. So anyhow, he slips him and he heads back to Bridget O'Shaughnessy's character, right? Uh, or her. And he starts talking to her. And at this point, he knows she is utterly full of shit, right? So you get this interesting scene where he is letting her, giving her enough rope to continue to kind of lie and embarrass herself a little bit. So basically, do you know who's behind this? You know, all that kind of stuff. No, I don't know. And then he name drops Cairo is around and she just is like the worst liar. She yeah. gets up, has her to whole, fidget everything. Her whole demeanor yeah. changes. Right. And then I think it's also around this time that the the fat man's name is dropped into this. 
Um, so we're starting to see all the characters are in play. Um, and really that's one of the next steps is what he leaves heads out and basically runs back into Wilmer's character playing it cool in a hotel. And he just does that awesome. Like I got bigger balls in you thing. I'm just going to go up to the, um, not the just tail. that. I mean, I, I almost kind of feel bad for Wilmer by the end of this. Cause Humphrey Bogart just beats his balls throughout the whole movie. Oh, it's, it's relentless. I love it. Oh no. Yeah. Wilmer is just shit on by everyone, at least in the book. And in previous versions, it's like Cairo and him had like a little bit of a connection, but Cairo was still more than happy to let him get fucking sold off to the cops. Right. So it, it, yeah. Oh yeah. No, he's spade, a human punching. I mean, spade is relentless toward this guy. Like he never lets up. Yeah, and you got to watch out. Wilmer's going to fog him if he's not careful. But it's just like, oh, my God, do I love this era? Like he goes up to him and says, hey, let your boss know I want to talk to you. Stop telling me this is just like he just shames the shit out of him. Right. And then he goes over to the house detective of the hotel. Again, this is just like John Wick stuff. Like they were morality officers and all that kind of a thing, but I'm not uh-huh. entirely convinced that these were as big of a thing as they were described in like the classical books. But just the concept of just there's this network of detectives. They all know Sam Spade and they're just always hanging around in hotels, knowing who's going in and out at any given time and who's right. up to what. Oh, it's so goddamn charming. I, lo- I love the shit out of it. Me too. Uh, but he goes over and is like, you know, why are you letting these little two bit toughs in here with their guns, uh, you know, uh, bulging out of their coats and he just chases him off, embarrasses the shit out of him. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he has to go back to Gutman and tell him, like, you know, I got caught. The guy wants that. He knows you're around. You got to call him. Right. And you can just tell Gutman's just laughing in Wilmer's face. Yeah. So it's not the same just direct shaming and embarrassing as uh, Spade gave him, but he's getting it from every direction. Oh, yeah. Right? And now for, for Wilmer, it's personal. Yeah. So cutting ahead right to the introduction of Gutman, he calls and says, hey, come on over to my hotel. Let's start talking this out. So we he comes over. And we get basically the introduction in his first film role, Sidney Greenstreet, right? And as awesome as did he do tons of stage work. Yeah, yeah. tons of that. Right. Uh, But no, this was his first job in film coming over from from New York, doing a ton of stage work. By the way, Mm -hmm. it's also John Huston's first direction, uh, directing of a picture, too. Just right out the gates into the the Maltese Falcon. Yes. I didn't know this was his debut. It is. First time, first time uh, director, right? Um, And it's also one of the first, like High Sierra was the big one, but this is like Humphrey Bogart's coming out as a leading man. He was always like the two bit um, gangster who got killed at the end of the second act in films. Well, yeah, right? I mean th- he's got this and I think I think it's 2 years later in 1943 he gets Casablanca. Yeah, and Treasure of the Sierra Madre not too long after. So it's it, it is crazy just everybody being thrown into, you know, so many people being thrown into this and it just being like iconic right out the gate. And it oh, should be noted 
we talked about this last time. George Raft, the actor who's most famous for passing up on everything in the universe, he was offered Sam Spade's uh, role in this, and he was just such a raving asshole. They got rid of him. He didn't understand the script, just like Double Indemnity. He did well, aside from being illiterate, he literally doesn't understand scripts. But he just like didn't understand the character, and he was just like a huge prick. And they just were like, "Fuck off," <laughs> you know. And then history was made, right? And now he has a Wikipedia of all the amazing movies that he was such a raving asshole or too stupid to recognize. He just missed out on all these things. <laughs> so yeah. um, again, just history could have been so different. So we get Green Street's just awesome. He is just eating the scenery, you know, no pun intended or anything like that. But that character is right out of the book. I can only hear him in there. I always thought that's just him applying his thing to it. Mm-hmm. Credit to the the source material. He took it and just knew exactly what it was and just put it on the screen just perfectly. He is awesome right. <laughs> in this no, it's, he's great and then you know his character comes in the archetype comes in and i'm like okay this is where uh lawrence tierney got his inspiration from in the in the star trek episode is clearly this character oh uh, absolutely i mean yeah right down the line so he does start to relay the history of the maltese falcon right Basically says it's unbelievable amounts of wealth. You wouldn't believe me if I told you how much I think we could get from this, right? So he starts to offer him. The first one was a couple hundred bucks and the promise of sex. <laughs> That's Bridget O'Shaughnessy's, you know, weapons. You have five thousand from Peter Lorre, and then Casper Gutman comes in uh, with twenty five thousand dollars now, twenty five thousand dollars when we get the bird. Right. In 1941 money. And that was the same money from 1931. It's just unimaginable wealth. Right. Yeah. So really, at this point, it's some interesting stuff showing you that Sam Spade is putting on a character and manipulating everyone else. He really gets into a shouting match and screams at Gutman to let him know that this is business. I don't want to be jerked around with all this. And I, you have until five o'clock to, um, you know, let me know if you're all in it's for keeps, right? Slams the door runs out. And in just like those really interesting couple moments in the film, I love that he looks at his hand and it's shaking and it's spade kind of realizing he's not even all that comfortable with where he went in that moment because it's also, he makes a point of like, I hate guns. I don't use them. Right. So he has like a pretty clear morality. It's mm-hmm. notwithstanding for sleeping with women, but I think he has some clear, like, no, but there, are, some, there, are, things, there right? are certain lines he doesn't cross. Right. So it's like, I'm not even sure what to read of it other than it's not just a, superficial one-dimensional kind of character he's not comfortable where this is turning him into or what kind of a fakeness he has to put on and you get that one more time later on when he like hurts effie when he thinks he has the 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 falcon right he grabs her arm and doesn't realize what it turned him into right and what it turned all these other people into as well So 
what then more or less it's a little bit more bumping around but he is brought back then to the hotel they want to speak to him again and this is now wilmer um and cairo we see is going into um just happened to pat two ships in the night cairo's going in there so what you're seeing is the fat man cairo are starting to team up so spades brought back there and you can tell that they basically what we're led to what we'll later find out is cairo figured out what the deal is right he happened to see a ship coming in from hong kong that he remembered seeing there um oh well you know a little bit of housekeeping we should say the plan was is Bridget, Cairo, Wilmer, they all stole the Falcon from a Russian guy in Hong Kong, a Russian general, right? They got it. Thursby, O'Shaughnessy, and them took it, and she took off with the bird, right? So they've been mm-hmm. kind of chasing her to get it. And supposedly, Cairo re- oh, supposedly this Russian general or someone who had it before him didn't understand apparently doesn't understand how valuable the bird is that's what we're led to believe right right so that's some of the stuff that's like gutman's going to come clean with spade about so he's brought back in and what we find out is cairo figured out it's on this boat coming back so they realize oh we actually don't need spade anymore we're gonna be able to get this ourselves so they bring him in they string him along and it's if you watch the the glasses it's true um Gutman doesn't drink from the spiked glasses, uh, but they give him some knockout drops and Spade passes out. And Wilmer, because he's just a little punk, even though he does murder people in this, he's just a little punk. And he decides to get a little bit of revenge by kicking the hell out of uh, Spade's head while he's knocked out. So it's the only time this whole movie that Wilmer will ever have the high ground. Yes, after somebody gets uh, uh, mickeyed out, right? Um, really subtle. You don't pick it up necessarily too easily, but for a chunk of the movie, then uh, Humphrey Bogart has a little prosthetic of a egg on his head from uh, oh, I didn't getting notice. kicked. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's I maybe only noticed because of nice 4K Blu-ray I have of it, but yeah, it, it's it's there. It's a subtle little thing. So it's showing this is like a little bit more serious, you know, than other things it's not just immediately dismissed so spade comes back to life um rummages around sees that there's a circled la paloma uh, a boat coming in from hong kong and he's like okay he heads down to the dock to look for this boat it's on fire down there um it's in san francisco the the firemen all have la fire department gear on (laughs) just a little uh, goof in the film Uh, but he's talking to people there ship's captain's missing boats on fire oh what the hell are we gonna do but no one else was on board supposedly right so don't worry about it like the girl he was looking for it's not there right or she's not there goes back to his office he's talking to effie there uh they're Oh, by the way, we did skip over another scene where they did get Cairo and Bridget together and they have basically a cat fight. Right. Um, Good stuff. But just like the absurdity of uh, Peter Laurie's just got throttled by uh, Mary Astor while he turned his back. Right. And then Um, the whole thing about like, well, I just screamed to get your, your attention. 
Yeah, oh, no, yeah, he was getting his ass kicked in, in there. And we get some more play with the cops and all that kind of a thing, right? There is kind of the red herring storyline of the the widow of Archer goes to tell the cops that, you know, he's up there sleeping with a girl, like an anonymous tip. It's just like the classic spurned woman gets him swatted, basically. Um, so there's some of that stuff going on. That's great flavor. It's great flavor. But like you said, uh, the wife doesn't really play that much of a role in this anymore, which was not what I expected at first, but interesting to know. No, it's, it's true to the book too. I mean, it, it's just it shows you the Spade character, I think, right, that, yeah, he didn't really have an issue sleeping with her. And it just adds a little bit more kind of peril to it. Right. And a maturity in this one of him, you know, cutting her off. Right. In there also is he clearly for real slept with Bridget O'Shaughnessy, right? Knowing that Wilmer's down there looking, but it's one of those cut to the drapes kind of a thing. Yeah. But they do have a, a, a sexual relationship at this point. But he's also knowing that she's really um, she's still lying. Dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, probably a decent idea that he like when does he know that she killed Archer? Probably right, like sooner than than we pick up on it, because yeah, that's the big right. reveal at the end is that she's actually the one who killed Archer. So and it's when, like, and you actually, and it actually makes sense because you know, I, I guess I could have talked about this at the end, but I liked the way that the you know the actor who played Archer went, right before he got shot, the, the look on his face looked like he recognized whoever was shooting him. Hmm. No, no, yeah, he, he, he totally does. He looks up and kind of smiles, right? It's not like, oh, what do you got there? It is a what do you got there. It's what he recognizes, right? Spade knows, well, yeah, he probably knew immediately because he's like, Archer was an idiot, but he's not such an idiot that he would have got caught in a, uh alleyway with Thursby with his hands in his pockets, right? Right. So, yeah, he probably knew, which then suggests that while O'Shaughnessy's thinking she's using – him uh and using sex as a weapon it's like spades using sex well, as a weapon he's using her right? this whole movie he like he, oh, yeah. he's he is the actual master manipulator right so it does make you wonder like when they have their emotional confessions to each other if that's real from him how much are they lying and then the hard part is it's also 1941 films and people fall in love and declare love instantly right that's just the cliche at the time so it adds a little bit of like who's using who who's actually truthful in any of this and then how much do you have to just do the shorthand because it's an old film right right um so kind of moving along here they're back effie and uh spade are in their office boom in comes uh, um uh walter uh houston <laughs> shot cameo, He's, yeah yeah which you don't even really even see his face right but he is Captain Jacoby of the the boat, the La Paloma, La Paloma. riddled with bullets, managed to get to uh, Spade's office, presumably because uh, Bridget tells him. Carrying right, a wrap package. Right, wrap package. They open it up, and this is where Bogart and Effie there see it. Bogart doesn't really recognize what's doing to him. They open it up, and it's the bird, right? The, the Maltese Falcon's there. The Maltese there. Falcon. Right. So, okay. They get a phone call. Bridget O'Shaughnessy is screaming, needs help. 
lets you know spade jumps into action basically he's like i'm gonna take the bird i'm going to put it you know hide it um just in a package or a luggage check area he's gonna go off and check on her and blah 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 basically it ends up being an awesome 20 25 minute end part of the sequence is just a chamber drama now yeah so what it is is everybody's in his flop house of an apartment it's Gutman, it's Wilmer, it's Peter Laurie, and it's Bridget O'Shaughnessy and Humphrey Bogart are all there. All the cards are now on the table. All the players are here. They basically know he has the bird and it's good tension of basically Bogart going, well, I know where it is. You can't kill me. Otherwise, you'll mm-hmm. just never get it, which is true. Nobody knew who where yeah. it would have been, no, right? It, it would have yeah. been just lost. And he's like, well, I need my money here, right? And he's just going to kind of call them all out on it. And oh, by the way, I can't possibly get it here before the morning. So guess what? We all have to spend the night with each other. And then he starts going through of like, all right, I'm going to start causing some major rifts in this room. Well, and maybe I, I like, other people are going to get shot, right? Well, I like the first thing, of course, because like I keep saying, it's a it's a running joke throughout the whole movie uh at one point spade says well you, you gotta there's got to be a fall guy that takes the blame for yes. all these murders that happen and so who, who does he suggest right away wilmer oh of course right <laughs> and it's like he's probably right in this too right you just yeah. he's gonna be screwed if they just all take off and he's suddenly in a bunch of cash the cops already want to hang him by his <laughs> you know hang him right so and it's just like it, it green street's performance in this is so fun because he's like, ha, 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 that can't be true, but just for entertainment, tell me your, uh, your plan. Right. And it's like, Oh, he actually got bought into that a lot sooner than you might want to, from Wilmer's perspective. Right. And then right? The, I mean, just the, the, the look of realization on Wilmer's face when, uh, green street is basically like, well, it was nice knowing you kid. <clears throat> oh, it, <laughs> and just watching like, uh, Lori in the background, like he's, smiling at some of this stuff like he's on board with like you know it's one less person to cut into this right uh but there he's just really trying to see this uh you know a lot of issues in that room because it's like well maybe a perfectly fair way of getting out of this is just having people start shooting at each other right and it's like well they'll kind of take care of it and it's also just like the real way to get out of this, maybe with a bunch of cash, maybe like you never know what Spade is really what his motivations are in the end. Right. right. And it, the way it plays out is you don't have to find out. Yeah. But well, the I mean, other one, thing, one less, oh. one less liability. Oh, yeah. But the other fun thing is like Green Street's doing his game in there, too. Um, he fancies himself as smart as anyone there. Um, like he thinks Spade's kind of his intellectual equal. So he gives him $10,000 and goes, well, you know, circumstances have changed. This is my, you know, honor as a gentleman. This is as much as I can raise. He gives him the $10,000, palms a thousand dollars of it. And then later on, just to entertain himself and cause issues, he blames, um, O'Shaughnessy for stealing it. And this is a code thing. Um, in the, in at least the first movie and then in the book he takes o'shaughnessy to the kitchen and makes her strip to like show that she doesn't have the money on her 
in this one, it's interesting because they weren't going to be able to do that. Um, but it's like the only time I think where she tells the truth to ever him. tells the truth. Yeah. Right. And it's like a really subtle thing and you can kind of, you can see it in her eyes and he believes her finally is she just goes and like, no, I don't have it. And it's just like a really subtle kind of like a nod and he well, gets and, it. Uh, and I right? think Mary Astor kind of plays it well because it's the only time that she ever comes across as halfway genuine. And I'm not saying that, I mean in her performance. I mean, like every other yeah. time that she's lying, she does in all, you know, theatrical and, you know, woe is me sort of thing. But the one time she tells the truth, she's like, she has no act to go with it. Right. Um, also in there, it's like, oh, no, well, we're not going to uh, blame Wilmer. And then um, <laughs> Spade's like, well, how about Cairo? Cairo's like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. It's just it's a great chamber drama. Basically, they end up needling Wilmer so badly that he, you know, gets um, goaded into attacking and then shooting Bogart, right? And everybody's like, no, don't do that. We will lose the Falcon for sure if you shoot him. And for what, like the third time at least, uh, Bogart decks him, knocks him out, right? Uh, disarms him, and then they throw him on the old fainting couch, and he's just going to sleep off a good chunk of the rest of the film. Um, but when he does, and they agree basically after he's knocked out, like, okay, yeah, you're right. Well, yeah, he'll be our Patsy, right? And it's some good logic that I like. It's enough for the film. Spade's just like the prosecutor just wants an easy win. They just want to pin this on somebody. They're not going to look too hard at anything else going on. Just give it to them. And I guarantee you it's going to be, um, done. So I don't know if that sits right with you as a prosecutor, but it worked for me in the movie at I mean, least. It, right. I, I know I'm watching a movie, so I'm, I'm really not caring that whole, right. a whole lot. So, um, Wilmer does wake up at one point and looks around and everybody is just looking down at him. It's like a weird, like very stylized imagery of just everyone staring into the camera at him as being condemned. It, it's solid stuff, right? Just a lot of fun in there. So, okay. Well, kind of all the cards are out. Everybody's kind of overtired of manip- manipulating each other. They just spent the night just kind of sleeping there and just uh, Gutman's reading like crime novel stuff. <laughs> you know, they're playing cards. Yeah. So, okay. Now I can get the, uh, the bird here. He calls up Effie. She shows up super excited um about this hands him the bird and they get in they're all just tearing at this uh package well yeah and, and then and th- oh, there's yeah. one little thing we forgot to set up throughout the course of this bird being shuffled oh, yeah. around by people supposedly no one knew what the the value of the bird was and who, some at some point it was painted over with black enamel so it doesn't look yes. like the jewel encrusted thing that it is uh, so when they get this this package, they open it, they see it's the bird, and they start trying to scrape away at the enamel. Oh, just um, Gutman with a little butter knife, a pen knife kind of a thing, just scraping at it and realizes it's just lead. It's yeah, a fake. The, it's a fake. The, be- the best reaction in the whole movie is when uh, Cairo loses his shit at, at Gutman oh, yes. after this. 
Because even after being, well, he did like screech when um, O'Shaughnessy was throttling him. But yeah, but yeah, this he's is just way like, better. This is oh, like over the top. Hilarious. So it's just you fool, you fool. You let the Russian know. But it's also like and then it, what they think is it's the Russian made a dupe up and let them steal this really easily. It's entirely possible that they stole the only one that's there and that it was just fake all this time. Right. Gutman didn't overplay his hand or anything like that. So it's now causing the question whether this thing is real at all. Right. right. You just have no idea. But the other really cool turn is Gutman is just soaked in sweat <laughs> at this point. Right. It's just beating and falling off of his head. But he is distraught. But you can see just that moment of him taking a moment and realizing, well, this isn't me. I'm going to compose myself. And then he just straightens up and goes, well, if you consider just uh, one more trip to Hong Kong to get the real one after 17 years, this is only like an extra 3% of time. And he goes, all right, who's with me? And he just rallies the troops back out to go. They look over. Wilmer's gone in all this kerfuffle. kerfuffle he uh, slips out the door. So he's scurrying away. Um, and then Peter Lorre, he's like, all right, yep, let's go. Let's roll it back. Let's do this again. And I'm like, give me the, I mean, they go and do eight movies together or something like that. Uh, Green Street and Lorre, uh, they ended up being like a great pair and stuff, but I'm like, give me these two characters on that second trip, fucking it all up again. I would right. love to see that. Um, by the way, in the book, um, Wilmer is down there and shoots the shit out of Gutman, kills him. Oh, okay. For that betrayal. You don't get that in the movie for whatever reason, right? Well, gee, that would have been some sort of, you know, catharsis for Wilmer being shit on this whole film. Yeah, he never gets spayed, but he at least gets, um, you know, Gutman. Uh, doesn't presumably happen in this. Um, so they leave and then, oh, by the way. I'm going to keep a thousand dollars of that money, right? As you know, my expenses, they leave and immediately spade is calling the cops going, Hey, we got somebody here. And by the way, look for Gutman and Cairo. They're your, your guys. Right. And then you get what, probably about eight minutes left of the film at this point, something like that. And you get just the most amazing scene of Bogart basically laying out a lot of his character but you don't you just don't know how much of it's truly true. I'd like right? to think I mean, I see what you're saying, but I'd like to think this this is the first time in the whole movie where where uh Spade is being a hundred percent genuine. Cause I think it's more interesting now. Probably. You're right. I mean, there's no way of knowing this whole this whole movie's about manipulation and what's the truth and what's not. But I love I love the fact that, you know, for a for a hot minute there <laughs> Mary Astor, Bridget O'Shaughnessy is like, so we're going to get away with this and we're going to live happily ever after, right? Oh, he, she's like, uh, the the line is something like, you know, I would always come back to you. And his, his is like, well, in 25 years, if you get out of San Quentin or whatever, you can come back to me. I'll wait for you. Right. And she's like, I beg your pardon. You, you scared me for a moment there. <laughs> that That's a good joke. And he's like, no. I hope they don't ruin your perfect little neck by hanging you. Right. And it's like, what? So, yeah, it's what you I think that the, where I come down on it is I don't know if Sam Spade knows if he's telling himself the truth. 
right? Because they both claim to love each other, but they are both so deep in manipulating each other. I don't know if he knows if that's true Mm -hmm. or not, but what he does default back on is he's like, don't think I'm as immoral of a character as like I pretend to be like, or, you know, basically he says something to that effect. And it's like, listen, he might not have ever wanted that money to begin with because it was morally wrong. This wasn't their thing to steal. It wasn't his thing to take either. Right. And even at thousand dollars, he takes from um, Gutman at the end, he hands that over as evidence. I mean, as a bride, and, and, right. And as, and as much as he doesn't seem to care all that much about Archer's death, he does this. I mean, the end goal in this is to still, catch the people responsible for this conspiracy of who killed him. Right. And that, that's what he says. It's like, listen, Archer was an asshole, but, and he also says it's like bad for business to let your partner die, but he had like a honor. It's like, this is just what you have to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And did that supersede everything else is like, it's just his honor as a person, as a private detective. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, he had to see it through to the end. You still murdered someone. So, you know. Right. Yeah. And there's no getting over that. Right. So it basically he runs through a list of all the things. It's like, yeah, maybe the money, if the money was here, maybe that would be a a check in your, you know, your side of maybe we'll run off together. But we're we're never going to know. But don't assume that it would have been. Right. So he's he dodged a bullet and not having to face that because he didn't know what he would have to do, I think, but it's perfectly plausible. He would have just turned everyone in, you know, the Maltese Falcon does, belongs in a museum. Maybe he would take that turn at the end. Who's to say, right. but the cops show up, they, you know, the right race to the, uh, the end of the film, they say they caught Gutman. They caught Cairo. Uh, I don't remember if they caught Wilmer, but he did point out, I like, hope, hey, be careful. He has guns. I hope Wilmer goes on, leads a happy life. Maybe he finds the real thing and just is rich. Well, I won't <laughs> go that far because he totally did kill Thursby and Jacoby. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. Well, yeah, like the housekeeping stuff again is they they went and they tried to catch uh, Jacoby, but he uh, he uh, got shot up, running, ran away and a big dude. He was too strong and even being plugged six times. Look, right? I'm not saying the man doesn't deserve to to face consequences, but given that he was shit on the whole film, I somehow wish that he ends up the be- in the best position out of the four of them. Uh, I'm rooting for Cairo. I don't think he ever hurt anybody, right? I got a soft spot for Lori. Just like get that guy some money, let him go to the the you know the show every night. Let him be happy. Um, but um, let's see here. Where that's pretty much it. She, he turns uh, O'Shaughnessy in, and they leave the the fake there in his in his apartment well don't over you know simplify the end here because they they take her off they put her in the uh elevator you see the jail uh you know the old timey elevator closed reminiscent of a jail cell yeah also i i don't think i'm over reading this one too much 
but it started with the tombstone shadow. The shadow of the bars going across, it puts a, a, a bird foot shadow on her face. I didn't notice that either. I've got to go it's back the, and look at all these clues. It's the little uh, cliched little, you know, couple toed bird thing right across her face. But it's also a jail cell. I don't know. But it's certainly not by accident. And then you get the most iconic line that is not in the book. It's not in any other versions of it. It was made for this film. It's, you know, the cops ask him, what is this? He's like, it's the stuff that dreams are made of. And then they, they take off and he takes her presumably to the hangman (laughs) more or less. Right. Yeah. It's uh, unlikely. She's going to be getting off too much uh, with this. And there you go. Thus ends the Maltese Falcon, right? That's it. So, I mean, Matt, this was your first time watch. Final thoughts. How do you think it stands the test of time? I've had such a good time with this noir theme that we've been going through. And this is another win in my book. Just a lot of fun. The performances are, are top notch. The mystery is actually really good for not having read the book or really known anything about it. I, 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 you know, I didn't see things coming. Things weren't telegraphed. And yes, there were the beginning of certain archetypes here, but it's so charming and so well-contained yeah, this is we're two for two in the noir summer that we've been having. Mm-hmm. Uh, so strong agree. <clears throat> I would say go back and watch um, the 1931 version. It's interesting for a couple reasons. Um, well, first off, it's also really short, um, 71 minutes or something like that. But it's a pre-code movie. So you get to see some stuff that I'm like, oh, that's I didn't think you would see such overt uh, references to, you know, marital affairs and sex and, you know, homosexual mm-hmm. relationships in there. So it's interesting like that. But then the rest is you could do like a college course on this because it's the exact same source material. That one is also pretty close to the book and arguably in some ways, like maybe even slightly closer with some of the leniencies that you could get. Right. But the film has absolutely no magic to it whatsoever. So if you want to see a thing where it's like you have the same script, but you want to see what direction and casting can do and performances, right? And how Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Sidney Greenstreet, Peter Lorre, uh, John Huston, you know, um, Elsa Cook, right? You go down that list what all of them bring into the film and like elevate it like crazy. It's a cool just, you know, juxtapose uh, to juxtapose those two right next to each other. Cause it's just, and it's also, you know, to be fair, it's an extra 10 years or plus of, or 10 years of like film, right. Going into the golden era of cinema, but it's just super interesting to see that. What you should totally miss is Lady the Satan Metal Lady. For some insane reason, they decide to take the source material and make it into a parody. So it is an awful, awful comedy. They changed the plot around in like confusing ways, so it's very difficult to follow. And the whole movie feels like it's an in-joke, but nobody is in on the joke. And it's like it's parodying a genre that wasn't even like crazy huge at the time. 
So I'm like, I'm watching so it. So basically, like, it's like. Is, a, go on. It's it. So basically, it's like Casino Royale, 1967. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Right. So it's. Gutman is like gender swapped to a woman, right? Cairo is just like a weird British dude. It's there's scenes where Spade and the Cairo character are searching an apartment and they're just handing stuff to each other and doing weird prop comedy. That makes no sense. It's awful. Avoid that one. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that uh, totally sounds like Casino Royale 67. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing, this did get a sequel in 1975 starring uh, George Siegel um, as Sam Spade Jr. And it was a comedy parody like legacy sequel. I think a couple surviving cast members came back like um, Effie, the secretary um, and maybe Elsa cook. I forget, Uh, but they come back and it's like, that was a hated film as well. It's like, I I don't know. I I don't need to see the parody of uh, the stuff, even the parody that happened before him. This one stands the test of time. Hard recommend. Yeah, it's fantastic. I still like me and my double indemnity a bit more, but this is a solid ass film. We had a good couple of months. We were eating well these last two months is what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. Well, now let's look forward to September. Thank you. Noir month. Will it continue uh, in September? So I was going to say, looking at the first thing on the list, apparently the malls aren't the only thing that put out Christmas stuff early. <clears throat> yeah, I I couldn't make heads or tails of this one. So my first choice is from 1983, A Christmas Story. I, I don't really understand why this is getting airtime. A movie I love. It's one of my favorites. Sure. I don't I don't know why it's on in September, but so I think you all know this one, but a youngster, Ralphie Parker, spends most of his time dodging a bully and dreaming of his ideal gift, a red rifle, a red rider air rifle, frequently at odds with his cranky dad. But comforted by his doting mother, Ralphie struggles to make it to Christmas Day with his glasses and his hopes intact. Yeah, I, I looked around. It didn't seem like it was a themed like evening or anything. So I, I don't know why TCM elected for that but i mean i wouldn't mind if that comes up again in a couple of months but yeah i don't know if tnt and tbs um get exclusivity during that period oh, they might not. they might you're, you're right maybe that is why it's on tcm in september who's to say i would have like at least after thanksgiving but okay well at least uh, after at least after halloween yes <laughs> <laughs> i listen I, I don't know what to tell you from 1939 Love affair, near tragic misunderstandings threaten a shipboard romance. From 1938, the lady vanishes. A Hitchcock. Miss, yeah, Miss Freud disappears on a return trip, uh, a return train trip from a vacation in the Balkans. Um, I'll leave it at that. It's a Hitchcocky film, right? From 1966, The Fearless Vampire Killers, or you can't Pardon say, Me, But Your Teeth Are In My Neck. I was going to say, you can't say that without you know putting on the rich snob voice. Pardon me, but your teeth are in my neck. <clears> hey, <throat> uh, Roman Polanski film. Uh, spoof on vampire lore center rounds, centers around a pair of hunters roaming the Slovenian countryside to catch the elusive creatures. And then 1938's 
Boys Town. True story of Father Flanagan's fight to build a home for orphaned boys. Spencer, Spencer Tracy. Tracy. Yep, and Mickey Rooney. So, Matt, <clears throat> what are your thoughts? Where do you think I'll be going, and where do you hope I will be going? Well, I don't think it's going to be a Christmas story, even though I love that movie. We're just a little yeah. too early for that. It doesn't um, feel right. I know your thoughts on Mickey Rooney, so I don't think it's going to be that one either. <laughs> I was hoping you'd remember. I think he's a troubling, disgusting little creature. Uh, despite the fact so you're that correct. Both, you're despite correct. the fact that both Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney are in the movie that started the idea for this podcast, I didn't think it was going to be that one. Um, hey, I just love that you remember my strong opinions about Mickey Rooney. Oh, it's hard Continue. to forget. You're playing um, very effective uh, narrowing down here. Now, after the two awful parodies that you've seen just in researching for this one, I don't think we're going to go for the spoof on the chance that we're going to run into another awful parody, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm really hoping we're going to get our first Hitchcock because I, I think I saw The Lady Vanishes a long time ago, but I don't remember. Wow, is that right? It. We haven't done a Hitchcock yet. We haven't done a Hitchcock. It's come up, but we have not committed to a Hitchcock yet, and I'm kind of hoping mm. this might be the first because I... I, I Love Hitchcock. I've seen this movie a long time ago, but I don't remember anything about it. And it's an interesting little bit of um, history in his filmography because it's just before he starts making films in America. This is one of his last sole British productions. So, oh. I, I mean, I know we've been doing mysteries the last three months. Maybe we're a little tired of it. Maybe you're going to go with the shipboard romance because, you know, you have Charles Boyer of Gaslight fame on there. But I'm secretly pulling for the Hitchcock one, but you always do stuff out of left field. So maybe we're going to go with the, the shipboard romance or the awful parody since you like to show you like to throw a wrench in our in our uh, the kind of movies we watch every now and then. But I'm fairly confident that it's not going to be either a Christmas story or the Mickey Rooney film. <laughs> Yeah, you're 100% right there. So I will say there is a film on here that I've seen a dozen plus times. It's a weird one that I've seen all the time since I was a child. And how dare you suggest that it's not going to be a solid parody film. It will be, in fact, the fearless vampire killers. I have a long, long history with this film. I didn't know. I also didn't know if you, the Roman Polanski weird factor was going to play into maybe not steering toward this film. If anything, it makes me want to steer into it. Um, not to preview what we want to talk or what we're going to talk about next time, but I'm interested to enter into that discussion of, yes, there is an icky factor to this film with the person who also is the star of the film and the director, right? I want to talk about that and how that impacts film because we've talked about around it before, right? Old things. It's going to be fraught with, um, you know, John Wayne's, right? We've done that history impacts like the legacy and how you look at these things. So I want to talk about that. I'm not, I will say, I'm oh, not saying on. that there's a, there's something, there's uh something right about the way John Wayne treated women, but it's a little different when it's, you know, Oh no. Women no, yeah, treating right. versus pedophile, but no, you're right. Right. But it's like, I want to talk about that, but I will say my family's Polish and they were all from Pittsburgh and before the troubles, Roman Polanski was like a hero of that 
region, right? Polish filmmaker making good, right? So my family, my dad saw all these things. They were a big family thing. So, you know, that kind of history aside, he would encourage me to watch this film among others when I was really young. Right. So this is something I've seen a million times. Now, when you right? say that this is actually a good parody, is it actually a good movie or is this like you're trying to pull another Russian film on me? No. It's so it's been a while since I went back. I've never watched it critically to talk about a podcast with it. Right. But it's an interesting parody. Isn't necessarily right. It's comedic elements in their look. It's not zany comedy. It's taking like hammer horror films and doing that with like comedic elements to it, but also applying a lot of legitimate kind of Roman Polanski's not, you say what you will, he makes good films too, right? Oh He's yeah. I mean, great filmmaker. So it isn't just like zany boob comedy bullshit. Well, no, right? I didn't it's think it was going to be that in 1966, but I didn't know, right. you know, you would just watch two fairly awful parodies. So I didn't know if you were in the mood for something. One like was a parody. The other was just a shit film. <laughs> so that and it has a uh, Sharon Tate in it. How many Tate films have you seen? Right. So uh, I remember her being like, you know, obvious, like there is a talent there and it's a shame she was murdered. <laughs> so it's an interesting film. I think it's. Calling yeah. it a spoof is a little not fair to what it kind of is, right? I mean, the, the the title makes it seem that way, but... Um, that's the Americanized version. I think there's a more kind of original titles, not that silly, right? It has multiple international titles and that kind of thing, so for what it's worth. Is it in English or was it made somewhere else originally? Well, now that you mention it, it, it probably was one of those things where it's dubbed in so much, it might not have had even a, a original soundtrack when it was in there. But Sharon, Sharon Tate's um, English, right? right? Speaks English, right? American. So, uh, like I said, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I'm interested to go back. I saw it a million times as a kid. I would rent it from the library all the time. Okay. Right, VHS tapes, I'm, I'm, right? I'm curious. You, you've piqued my curiosity and, and I feel like this is not going to be another three hour Russian art film. So no, you know. it, it certainly isn't that it's a, it's an interesting, you know, historical curio. I was like shocked to see that come up. I'm like, Oh, that's, a, that's a fun, weird film. So stay tuned. There you go. All right, Matt, let's tie it off. So, there you go. There's a lot of ways that you can continue this conversation. If you have an idea where, you know, Sam Spade's motivations were going to land if they got that bird, or if you let me know how Satan Metal Lady is actually like a forgotten classic and it's uh, not an utter piece of crap, let us know. There's a lot of ways that you can get in contact with us. So you can continue the conversation by email at tcmchallenge at gmail.com. We can be found at Facebook at tcmchallenge. And you know what? There's not other social media to worry about, but you can find me on Letterboxd. I'm going to talk about that. That's actually one of the better social medias out there for cool film reviews and just logging and stuff like that. I think I'm pro sub zero on there. Come find me on that, Matt. Well, I still am on the site formerly known as Twitter while it still exists. Um, I am at M Hansen 0207. 
uh, talking all kinds of things there, politics and movies and real life stuff and stuff that is trivia. But find it all on there and more at mhanson0207. All right. And a friendly reminder, like and subscribe to the show wherever you get it. And with that, I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us on this month's edition of the TCM Challenge. You you did steal my line, the one I was going to use, the, but I thought it was too obvious at the very end. So I'll just say that the best goodbyes are short. Adieu. Adieu.